Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Proverbs chapter 4. In terms of structure, as you may recall, the book of Proverbs opens with a brief preamble in chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, which is followed by 12 introductory poems about wisdom, which run from 1-8 through to the end of chapter 9. Here in chapter 4, we have three more, the sixth poem overall, which runs from verse 1 through verse 9, the seventh poem running from verse 10 through verse 19, and then the eighth overall poem running from verse 20 to 27. In the first of the three poems featured in this chapter, the father actually passes on a lesson that he learned from his father. So in a sense, this is the grandfather speaking through the son to the grandson. And we are thus reminded that wisdom is a multi-generational project. In a sense, that's what tradition is. Tradition is a way of doing things or thinking about things that is passed on from generation to generation across the ages. G.K. Chesterton said that tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. We will have the dead at our councils. Closed quote. Now, of course, not all traditions are healthy, and so David Hubbard says helpfully here, breaking the bad cycles and continuing the good ones are what wise parenting entails. Closed quote. I think that's well and helpfully said. The job of a parent is to edit one's family traditions and practices, passing on the good and weeding out the bad. I fear that in our present generation, we have perhaps overweeded, or to use an English proverb, we have thrown out the baby with the bathwater. We have done so much deconstructing that we have more or less burned the whole house down around our ears. Perhaps we will see a pendulum swing back toward respecting the wisdom of tradition in the coming decades. We shall soon see. Regardless, this tradition is given the stamp of God's own authority by nature of its inclusion in Holy Scripture. So, as a matter of faith, we will gather round the Father's knee so as to receive it. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts, do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you 
a beautiful crown. As I mentioned a moment ago, the theme of this poem is the need for the son to seek and steward the tradition of wisdom. He is to listen eagerly and carefully to the truths being passed on to him from his father, as indeed his father received them from his father in decades past. The person who properly esteems this wisdom of the ages will be exalted. He will be honored and rewarded in the race of life. The address here is generalized. We see that in the fact that it is addressed to sons in the plural as opposed to one son in particular. This is probably intended to demonstrate that what Solomon is saying to his son is intended as a model for what all fathers everywhere should be saying to their sons. It is the job of fathers generally to pass on reliable wisdom to their children. And it is the responsibility of children to listen. Michael V. Fox says here, Parental authority is a channel for communication of God's will. The two sources of authority reinforce one another. And in places where only one is mentioned, the other is not thereby excluded. Close quote. A child learns to obey God by being taught to obey his or her parents. Moms and dads, if you fail to discipline your children, you're actually making it less likely that they'll ever submit to the Lordship of Christ. But if you teach them to submit to you because they trust you, because you've communicated the value and necessity of this obedience in a wise and appropriate way, then you have paved the way for their loving and trusting submission to God through Christ. These two dynamics, familial submission and religious submission, cannot be separated. The former is contained within and prepares the way for the latter. Once again, we notice that wisdom here is personified as a woman. The grandfather, in essence, is telling his grandson to get Lady Wisdom. Marry that woman, boy, and she will look after you well. That's the basic idea. In verses 6 to 9, wisdom is spoken of as being a prized bride. If you can secure a marriage to her, you will have done well. In the second poem in this chapter, starting at verse 10, the emphasis is on avoiding the wrong path. The father here is switching back and forth from carrot to stick as he tries to motivate the son to prioritize the right things and avoid the wrong things, as any good teacher will do. Verse 10, hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Each of these poems is marked off by a fresh address to the sun, or in the case of the first poem, to sons in general. This middle poem begins with a bit of of a transition or a hinge. He says to the sun, 
I've shown you the right path. I've pointed you toward the right beliefs, the right values, the right practices and relationships. I have betrothed you to wisdom, as it were. Now it's up to you to continue on in this path and to avoid foolish and destructive alternatives. That's what we want for our kids, isn't it? We want them to trust that the instruction we are giving them is worth listening to. As a parent, I find this to be incredibly difficult to do in today's world. I was born in 1974, so I'm a member of Gen X. We're often referred to as generational translators. We understand and appreciate the boomers and the silent generation. And we have great love and sympathy for the millennials and the Gen Zs, the Zoomers who come after us. But as Gen Xers, we live in the vast ditch between those who came before and those who come after. And it often seems impossible to bridge that chasm. Our children are being told that everything that comes from the past is bad. It is all tainted by racism, colonialism, and capitalism. And to be clear, all our parents and grandparents were, in fact, sinners, as are all of our children and grandchildren, and as are all of us. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a perfect generation, not until Jesus comes back. In this world, all of us are sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. But we can learn from each other, and we must learn from each other. The wise young person today is going to listen carefully to the wisdom of mom and dad. They're going to sort through the values, beliefs, commitments, and practices of their grandparents. If there is racism there, weed it out. If there is colonialism there, weed it out. If there is a lack of concern for the poor and the working class, weed it out. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And don't go along with the class of cultural terrorists that are running wild through the halls of academia and who have effectively weaponized the tools of social media. Act wisely. Evaluate everything through the lens of Holy Scripture. Evaluate the traditions of the past and the fads and fancies of the present. I fear that many young people today, in attempting to run away from the blind spots of their parents, are running headlong into the blind spots of their peers. To such a young person, I would echo the wisdom of the inspired father in this poem. I would say, keep hold of instruction. Do not let go of everything from the past. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Hold on to true instruction. Guard it, for it will save your life. And do not run with those who only know how to deconstruct and destroy. Do not walk with those who only know how to criticize. When you meet people like that, give them a wide berth. Do not go with them. Do not get sucked in. For theirs is a road that leads to nowhere. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The third and final poem in this chapter begins at verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech, put devious talk far from you. 
Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This third poem returns to the theme of the first poem, the importance of committing to the path of wisdom. But it introduces a new category of metaphor. This poem presents an anatomy of wisdom. The father talks about the ear, the heart, the flesh, the eyes, and the feet. It also features a poetic inclusio. An inclusio is like a set of audible brackets at the beginning and end of a unit. This doesn't show up in English, but it would have been quite noticeable to the original Hebrew here. The word translated in verse 20 as incline is the same as the word translated swerve in verse 27. It is the Hebrew word nata. It means to bend or lean. And so the whole poem is asking, which way do you lean? Because leaning makes all the difference in the world. If you lean your ear toward wisdom, well, then you will find yourself walking on the path of wisdom. But if you lean toward evil, then you will soon find yourself stumbling headlong down the path that leads to hell. That's the idea. It all begins with how you lean. It reminds me a little bit of the way the apostles teach about sanctification in the New Testament. Paul will often say, forsake this and pursue that, or put off this and put on that. Peter will talk about turning away from evil and doing good. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, the apostle Paul is talking about how what we behold, what we look at, determines who we eventually become. That's exactly what the Father is saying here. You make some critically important decisions. You decide which way your head turns. You decide which way your body leans. You can lean toward the gutter, or you can lean towards the way of wisdom. Make the wise choice. The father here is calling on his son to lean his ear toward the words of wisdom. If you keep your head pointed in that direction, then your whole life, your whole person, your whole body will follow. In verse 23, he tells him to guard his heart with all vigilance because from it flow the springs of life. The old King James Version had that as, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Quote. Jesus said something very similar in Luke 6.45. He said, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks, close quote. So Old Testament and New, what the Bible is saying here is that the battle is won or lost in the heart. Eventually, the mouth will overflow with whatever is kept and treasured in the heart. Your lips will betray you. So rather than sewing your lips shut, you need to guard your heart. That's the idea. So how do you do that? The guarding metaphor seems to refer to what goes in and what comes out. We need to be careful, first of all, what we feed our hearts on. we got to think about inputs. I, I think that would apply to what media we consume, what books we read, what sermons we listen to, etc. And then also there's this idea of guarding what comes out, the overflow, what we allow to flow up from the heart and out through the mouth. We have to exercise leadership over ourselves. We cannot allow ourselves to plot evil or to cherish lusts or to harbor bitterness. We are responsible for what grows in our hearts and what overflows. 
We have to watch over all of that. We have to exercise leadership over ourselves. We have to be very diligent because as the Father says, and as Jesus affirms, the battle is won or lost inside. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. The Father now begins to talk about the importance of speech, the, the main overflow or the first overflow, we might say, of the heart. Jesus, likewise, talks about that as being downstream from the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. We have to be most vigilant, of course, over the heart, but then also we have to keep a very close eye on the mouth as well. We need to strain out words and expressions and rants that are incongruent with the life of wisdom. To put the matter simply, you should not verbalize every thought that you have. To speak in a modern idiom, I would say you, you can't tweet every thought that you have. If you have a bad thought, you need to catch that before it comes out of your mouth or before it shows up on your Twitter feed. You need to make a note of that thought and trace it back to the source in your heart, and you need to deal with it there as well. So this is a both-and approach. We're talking about source. We're talking about overflow. You need to exercise leadership over both. In verse 25, he talks about the eyes. He says, look straight ahead if you want to steer straight ahead, which, of course, is exactly the counsel that we give to our children when we're teaching them how to drive. I say to my kids all the time, where your eyes are looking, your car will follow. So keep your eyes on the road two to three car lengths ahead. In terms of what the metaphor is intending to convey, in this poem, the Father is commending an unbroken focus on the path of wisdom. Don't envy the initial successes of the wicked. Trust me, they're going to end up in the ditch sooner or later. And you make sure that you don't find the ditch while you're rubbernecking and, and watching the outcome of their path. You focus on this path. That's the idea here. Just stay focused on the path that you have chosen. In verse 26, he switches to the metaphor of the feet. Keep your feet moving forward on the path of wisdom. Keep progressing. Don't swerve to the right or to the left. Put some rumble strips down so that you don't even get close to the ditch. Live in the center, my son, and enjoy the ride. Now, as a Christian, we would want to add to this teaching by remembering that Jesus <laughs> is really good at rescuing people from the bottom of the ditch. He is the world's greatest tow truck driver to hijack the metaphor. But that doesn't change the fact that life in the center of the road is much to be preferred. The gospel never contradicts wisdom. Rather, what it does is complement and complete it. When Jesus drags us up out of the ditch, he gives us a new heart, which equates with a debugged, updated GPS. And he gives us the Holy Spirit, who, of course, is the ultimate co-pilot. Also as to help us travel the way of wisdom all the way to its blessed, abundant, and glorious end. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the End of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children, 
as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.